The Talking Point with Kathy Motsasana. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. All right, welcome to the final hour of the talking point. And uh, for any of you that still need those details in terms of uh, the recovery fund and accessing those monies, especially the business owners that would have been affected, we'll put those details up on our Twitter page as well. So you can find them under SAFM Radio. We'll put them up there so that you're able to access the email address and the contact details in order order to be able to apply for that funding. And if you do have any issues, do get in touch with us and let us know so that we're able to actually follow up on that process. Well, our final conversation of the day, the SABC will on Thursday be celebrating Women's Day under the theme Generation Equality, Realizing Women's Rights for an Equal Future. Now, one of the panelists that will be part of that conversation is Dr. Geraldine Fraser. Mulegeti, who also is the chairperson of Tiger Brands. Dr. Fraser Mulegeti, good morning to you and thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, good morning and good to speak to you again, Kathy. <laughs> Happy Women's Month. It's always a pleasure being in conversation with you. And I think such an important conversation that we are having today, generation equality, this idea that we will have a generation where women's rights are fully accessible, that we don't have to talk about how to get there, but that we will just be there as society how close are we to that generation? Wow, Cathy. Uh, Look, uh, we've gone a long way. There's no question. And I say this because uh, we, we've seen quite a number of uh, initiatives. And, and I mustn't talk about initiatives. Let's talk about the women's movement since 1975 in Mexico, um, Beijing 26 years ago, where there was an adoption of the uh, Beijing Platform of Action for Women that had nine very uh, distinct actions. We've gone a long way in terms of this march, but we're not far enough. And hence, this whole push that we must be talking about generation equality and how we realize uh, women's rights. And and we can do so in a number of ways. I mean, we can do that by uh, celebrating women's memories, um, by looking at the march of women. But I think the big issue is, so how do we overcome and ensure that the reality of uh, gender equality is something that women and men will fight for and and ensure that it becomes just a way of life, as you say, that uh, women on the African continent should never fear around the possibility of dying in childbirth, that the issue of access to water And potable water is the reality of women on the continent. That women's access to financing shouldn't be a theory or a struggle, but that there is a, that women have access to funds that clearly takes into account, if I can put it this way, uh, that deals with the deficit uh, 
of women's access to financing. And it's been equated, that deficit has been equated to the infrastructure deficit on the continent. And I mean, the the amount that would uh, talked about is something like a, a, to the tune of 40 billion US dollars. So it's to deal with those issues and say that we're going to tackle um, through uh, generation equality the reality of what we saw as the triple oppression of women in the South African context. And this is uh, you know, the reality facing women, secondly, black women and women as workers. But we also have the additional issue that you also have various sexual minorities amongst women also facing numerous challenges and, 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 and dealing with all these issues. So I think Thursday is going to be an exciting discussion uh, um, Kathy, where we will be looking at these uh, through different lenses mm. and, and, and talking about the role of community civil society, talking about the role of government and the broader public sector, talking about the role of the private sector to make a difference and, 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 and see how we tackle this and ensuring that the struggle is one that involves men and women where they speak out in this realization uh, for an equal future and do so in also addressing and speaking for those who may not have a voice at this point. So one of the greatest challenges, of course, has been that despite the great work that has been done by activists and and advocates of of gender equality over the years, what we have seen under COVID-19 is that the position of women in societies, and I believe this is globally, has been worsened. And we find ourselves if and should we, or rather should I say, when we emerge out of this crisis, unfortunately, it will again be women that have borne the greatest brunt of this pandemic, whether it is in the workplace, you would have seen the Deloitte report on on the workplace and how women are shouldering the greatest burden uh, in terms of increased workloads and just, uh, you know, uh, being overwhelmed by all of the expectations on them. And then we have women that are part of the informal work sector, how they've lost jobs in this period. So, So the point that I'm making is, There's been so much work that has been done, and yet when crisis hits, it seems to affect women the worst. What does that say about all of these efforts and and the political will to actually change the social positioning of women? You know, you're raising a very important point, and this is something that... uh, you know, a fair amount of evidence has been uh, gathered over uh, the past 18 months or so. The first reality is that clearly women carries the burden of care work, unpaid work. Women have also uh, been part of the informal sector. So I'm going to raise two 
points around this. The first issue is that um, that burden of dealing with uh, COVID and the fallout around COVID has largely been borne by women in communities. And, and, and this is because of their role as caregivers. And, and, and that burden hasn't been adequately supported uh, from the public sector, I would argue, or government, or even recognized sufficiently within communities and in families. The, the second point to that has been the whole issue of, for example, access to uh, grants that had been given during this period. So there has been uh, the special 350 rand grant in South Africa. But the irony is that from data that was made available, uh, that was available earlier this year, was about 75% of the beneficiaries of those grants were essentially male. And, and this was because the grant wasn't adequately geared to target people in the informal sector. And women uh, in informality is quite a large percentage. So women, again, got a double whammy from that point of view. The third point that I'd like to raise, Kathy, is when you look at the public sector and the health sector in particular, and you look at health workers, um, a very large proportion are women. And we know that over a period, and this is a global phenomenon, over a period of years, they, uh, in, uh, we could even state that over the past four decades, there's been a general denuding of uh, the public service and its relevance. And, and when you saw budget cuts, we saw cuts in both the health sector and the uh, um, education sector. And, and women were large, are largely, as I said earlier, health workers, but they also educators. So when these cutbacks happened, it's impacted on women's livelihoods. And yet, during COVID, there was a greater requirement for the functionality of the health sector, both the public and the private health sector. And uh, I, I served as chair of the Committee of Experts on Public Administration of the UN. It's a subsidiary body of the Economic and Social Council of ECOSOC. And the, the committee itself recognized the fact that what they called sort of the more unsung workers or the invisible workers almost rose to prominence during this period. And they rose to prominence because of the need for the health sector to, become, uh, to be functional. Having said that, this is also a sector where you have less well-paid workers. And uh, this recognition was underplayed. So coming back to your question, so what must be done? I think it's, it's, it's once again the recogni recognition of unpaid work, 
the fact that women is prevalent, are prevalent in the sector, that there should be a way of measuring unpaid work to GDP and, and, and how that is done. But I think a point that you've alluded to and something that's also come through various comparative studies is that we've almost seen an explosion of gender-based violence during this time. We've seen, the, seen an increase in uh, the reality that societies are confronting, uh, uh, shall I call it, I, I, I want to use the word carefully, but almost an explosion of problems around mental health. And again, the people who are bearing the brunt are women and the more vulnerable in society. So we've got to look at a complex set of interventions that will deal with us, but also recognize that we can't uh, um, shroud this in uh, um, silence or, or, or try to hide this. Because at the end of the day, it's the whole of society that's going to be impacted upon by this. You you raise such an important issue around the uh, quantification and you know the value of unpaid labour in this country. When we look at the fact that SA says the majority of households in this country are women-led households, so. Even if we were to do that, what is the value at the end of the day that will, you know, be apportioned to these mothers and to the women of of the country? So if we knew that the value of unpaid work in South Africa is X amount, what purpose would that serve and how would that inform how things are done? You, you know, uh, there's been uh, an uh, unfortunate reality, but it's a reality and we must see it uh, positively as well, that if you don't quantify anything, it's not really recognized. People tend to undervalue it. So if you put a figure to unpaid work, it, it, it may lead to a greater recognition of the importance of that particular group or that particular sector. So we've all been conscious of the fact that women uh, and professional women don't only work in their professional roles, but they also have additional functions. But because they're professional women, hopefully uh, they are able to put in place a support system. And probably, well, in all cases or most cases, pay for that. But in instances where a woman is not employed in the formal sector and uh, she is uh, just involved in care work in an unpaid manner, either within the family or within the community, whilst there's not a figure attached to it, that's not necessarily acknowledged. To what extent do we recognize the fact that when 
a woman or a parent out of the formal uh, uh, out of formal employment and just looks after her kids. To what extent do we celebrate that? I don't think we do that adequately. And what happens to a woman who's taken a conscious decision that for X number of years she is just going to be a full-time parent and look after her kids. When she re-enters the job market, that period of being outside of the job market is almost seen as a gap in her CV, rather than celebrating the fact that there are people who are contributing towards the next generation, the future of our country. So that's for women who are in formal employment. But for women who are in informal um, settings, who have not uh, uh, played a role outside of support in the family for the elderly, for the indigent, and so on, that recognition has also not uh, been considered. And, and what there's been a movement around over, again, the past 20 years plus, is to quantify that and say, put a number to that. Recognize the role of women uh, in the unpaid sector in order that this is appreciated to a greater extent. In order to to be able to truly lead uh, in terms of bringing about the kind of changes that will create a better environment for women to be able to truly flourish and to truly recognize and, and really access their full rights. We need political leadership and there does need to be political will. Uh, just, just your own reflections. I mean, do you get a sense that there has been the kind of will that not just plans and creates policy, but also that follows through, that follows through on, on, on commitments that have been made and as far as women are concerned? So let me talk very practically about uh, the environments that I have been in. And uh, I'm going to give two examples. So with the advent of democracy in our country, um, it was the ruling party that actually insisted that in uh, and through elected representatives at different levels, whether it's national and provincial leg- legislators, uh, um, that these legislators at least uh, that a certain percentage of them are women. I think it came uh, not all uh, political parties in the national parliament at that point in time wanted to take this step. And you know that in the, in the South African constitution, we don't have such a requirement. Neither do we have it in any of, did we have it in any of our laws at that particular point in time. But uh, that step, was required in order to ensure that we break down barriers, at least at the political level. We then, as well, had uh, presidents that were ready to take it forward and who brought uh, 
younger uh, women into the executive as well, um, as well as uh, younger men. So you had an intergenerational mix. You also had a, a larger cohort of women coming in. And irrespective of who says what, if you look at the positions that women were deployed to and the work that was done, and I'm again talking about uh, the first 10 years, for example, they were in strategic roles and I think made a real contribution to ensuring that their participation could never be seen as simply symbolic. And even if it was symbolic, it was important, but it went beyond the symbolism. So let me give you an example of the administration and the public service. So when we came into government in 1994, if my recollection serves me well, and I'm going to look at that figure as well for the discussion on Thursday once again, there was something like 11 women in senior management across the public service. And remember, we also had a public service that was fragmented into 11 uh, different uh, uh, um, uh, public services that were racially based and otherwise. But we also then took a conscious decision that we had to deal with the issue of ensuring greater women at middle and senior management level. And that required bringing women in and supporting them as they come into these positions. But in addition to that, we also had to ensure that we reviewed uh, uh, remuneration across the public service. And South Africa was one of the leading countries that introduced pay parity across the gender divide. So we had to deal with pay parity across race. We did it across gender as well. And this included dealing with benefits and all. And people may have forgotten, but I think the older uh, generation may recall that uh, before 1996, when you were a married woman, um, and including whether you were, and I use the term black in the broad sense, whether you were a black woman or a white woman, but when you were a married woman, you couldn't get access to a, um, a housing benefit. And this, in a, in a very uh, strange way, led to some other distortions that happened, you know, um, where women, uh, which is, uh, some of it may be good, where women, I think, took a conscious decision, well, I'm not going to marry because uh, I will be um, excluded from certain benefits. But you see, it wasn't necessarily a choice in the way where today a woman or man can decide when and whether they marry and they don't need to do it for material reasons as well uh, or material considerations. So, um, yeah, uh, there's a lot that's happened. There's a lot yet that yet has to be done. But I think this is part 
of hopefully what this discussion that we're going to have on Thursday will drill down <laughs> into. Uh, and, 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 you know, perhaps just to be a, a bit more pointed, in your view, do you think there has been enough political will to follow through on the commitments made to the women of this country? I think there's been a number of policies. I think there's been good legislation, but I think we always tend to fall down on the implementation. And this is not just from the side of uh, public office. This you also find across civil society. You find it in the religious sectors. And I think we must also look at the family. Have we changed culture in a positive way? And I'm not just talking culturally, narrowly, with a a capital C, but I'm talking about the all-pervasive culture across businesses, across government, across communities. And I think not really. We can do better. Dr. Geraldine Fraser Muligeti, let me thank you so much for your time today. And and she is, of course, the chairperson of Tiger Brands. And she'll be part of that conversation that will be hosted by the SABC on Thursday as we mark Women's Month under the theme Generation Equality, Realizing Women's Rights for an Equal Future. Of course, you can expect the voices of many other different women, including the Minister Kumbuzon Chaveni, she's the Minister of Communications. Communications and 